Hello and welcome to the 81st episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Sunday the 10th of December and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. The podcast is back on track after an extended break with many new shows lined up and raring to go. Quick apology to all the monthly subscribers for the non-existent output of the last few months. A quick thank you is also needed for the new subscriber William M and the once-off donations Christopher C and Puya K. Many thanks indeed. This week I'm delighted to welcome Professor Helena Sheehan to the show to discuss her most recent book, The Syriza Wave, Surging and Crashing with the Greek Left. She is a Professor Emeritus at Dublin City University and the author of many books including Marxism and the Philosophy of Science, A Critical History. So, to the interview. So, Professor Sheehan, how did you get interested in Greece in the first place? Well, um, I've been interested in Greece for a long time. Um, I started going to Greece um, when Yugoslavia died. I sort of felt the allure of the Balkans uh, decades ago, um, going to academic conferences as well as having holidays there. And I had a holiday booked for Yugoslavia and it was cancelled by the operator. The flights were cancelled and so I went to Greece for the first time in the early 90s. And uh, whenever I went someplace... I always checked out the politics of it. If I were there, what would I be doing? What party maybe I would belong to? And so I decided that in Greece I would belong to a party called Sinasivismos, which is a precursor of Syriza. Uh, It was uh, a party that came from the communist movement, uh, but in a critical way. And it kind of reflected my politics as as an act. I've been active on the left since the 1960s. So I became interested in Greece that way. Um, but I wasn't evenly interested in, in Greece for, for decades. It would My interest would come and go. But at the beginning of the crisis uh, from 2008 on, um, I felt compelled to think about the crisis, um, not just here in Ireland, but in world historical terms. As a Marxist, <laughs> I tend to think in world historical terms. And uh, I felt that Greece was at the cutting edge of the crisis in terms of the suffering that was being inflicted on the Greek people um, through the crisis. But I also felt that Greece was at the cutting edge of a possible path beyond the crisis um, because um, I I saw the role that Syriza, the party I supported, uh, was playing in relation to um, the uh, growing uh, social political movement. Um, in response to the crisis in Greece. So, in 2012, um, there were two general elections, uh, one in May and uh, one in June, and Syriza surged in its vote in the May election to the point where it looked as if they could win the June election. And so, between May and June in 2012, the whole world was watching Greece and paying attention to Syriza. So naturally, I would, since I had a longer-term, you know, um, affinity with Syriza uh, for uh, a longer time. So I felt compelled to um, not only pay close attention, uh, but to go to Greece to check out my intuitions about it, to check out my perceptions of it. I wanted to uh, see what was going on in Greece on the ground, but I also wanted to involve myself more with Syriza to see, was I right about it? 
uh, because Syriza was the kind of party I always wanted to join in Ireland because it, it, I felt that it synthesised the best of the old and the new left. How did it differ from, the, say, the old existing Communist Party, the, the KKE, is it? Yes, the KKE, the Greek Communist Party. Uh, well, they come from the Greek Communist Party. Um, uh, many of most of the outstanding members of, of series at that time had been in the KKE at one stage in their lives. But the KKE increasingly became um, very rigid and dogmatic and isolated itself more and more from the other forces of the left. Um, so I found um, I found it impossible, you know, to support the KKE. Though I kind of still took. Um, pleasure and the, the support they did have. Um, it's not a completely fossilized party. They still support, uh, they still attract uh, people of all ages, including young people. But I just felt very sad about their relationship to the rest of the left. And basically, that's why um, a lot of the people in Syria separated from left the, the KKE because um, they had just become too too rigid and uh, too isolated from the rest of the left. So what was it like being there on the ground at this time? Oh, it was very exciting. I went several times a year. I still do go several times a year. Um, I just I kind of, I found it was the kind of party I thought it was. Uh, it was very broad. Um, any party that, that has that support is a pretty broad spectrum. And naturally, I felt more of an affinity to some people than others because they were... Um, they were pretty confident that they were going to form a government at some time in the near future. Um, there were people in it who were pretty preoccupied with just how to get there as soon as possible, rather than what they were going to do when they got there. However, I did find a substantial number of people who were doing the serious thinking about what were the possibilities of a left government in this very difficult scenario that was facing them. Um, so I was I was very impressed. I was um, I was not only talking to them in in their offices, uh, but I joined them in their demonstrations. I was tear gassed with them. Um, I had long conversations uh, in in tavernas, and um, it's a beautiful place. I sort of had a very nice life while I was doing it. I was constantly stimulated, and Greece is just such a seductively interesting and beautiful place. So can you tell us then about how things developed to where they are today? Well, um, yeah, it's uh, surging and crashing. It's like a, a wave that, you know, crashed very dramatically. So from 2012 to 2015, uh, they were preparing for power. Um, there were more and more people on the streets. Um, there were more and more people joining Syriza. There, were, uh, there was a good relationship between Syriza and the, the broader social movements. Uh, the broader social movements were really, really impressive. I saw, you know, an intensification of a lot of things that I saw for many years on the left, but in a much bigger and more interesting and more creative form than I'd seen for a long time. Um, there, were, there were a lot of prefigurative projects, which I found really interesting. Uh, because people were suffering so badly from the crisis. Uh, there were alternative health projects, alternative kitchens, um, alternative education projects. Um, there were occupations of factories that closed down. The most dramatic uh, and fantastic occupation I've ever seen in my whole life um, was in 2013. 
one day, I, I happened to be in Greece in June 2013, just having political meetings as I did. And uh, one day I, on, on, in the afternoon, um, the government came on air and announced uh, the closure by midnight of their whole public broadcasting system. Like, you know, the equivalent to, you know, RTE or BBC was closing down at midnight. Um, the justification being that they had a, a Troika target to meet, you know, of so many public sector jobs that had to be shared. And this was a way of doing it all in one go. Um, so that was pretty shocking, as you can imagine. So uh, they called on people to come to support the workers in ERT, uh, ERT. So I had to figure out where it was, but, you know, I, I went out with thousands of others um, to a place kind of like Montrose, um, you know, out of, it was, you know, way out of the city centre. Uh, so I went to Ayi Parskevi, um, where the television, the main television centre was, and there were thousands of people there, and it was a lovely summer evening, and they were singing, you know, these old songs, the Greek resistance songs of Theodorakis and all that, and it was, it was kind of stunning. Uh, but uh, they, they, they can basically what Earth did was to cover its own closure, and the, the nature of the the television changed overnight. They were basically covering their own um, closure, or the government demanding their own closure, except that they were they were saying they weren't going to close, and uh, they had you know various MPs, particularly series of MPs, you know, breathing fire, including Cipras you know, I are supporting the art workers. So um, there was, you know, a lot of tension building up to midnight um, about what would happen because people just expected the riot police would come in and forcibly close it down. But what they did instead was close down the transmitters and they put the, they put the whole broadcasting system off there even before midnight. Um, however, other television stations, including the Communist Party, television station uh, broadcast aired and the European Broadcasting Union supported aired and so it was it was uh, still transmitting on on you know other transmitters and also on the internet and so they you know um, it was a very critical creative form of broadcasting it was workers control of the means of production on a scale you know I had never seen as, as, as resistance before and so they continued that for two years um, I was there for the first three days. Uh, they put me on air, and it was it was just an amazing thing to be part of. So, but there were many, many projects like that, really active, formidable, critical, creative resistance. Um, you know, those years were were fantastic, and you know, I feel um, really privileged to have been part of it to the extent that I was. So, you know, that continued. It was, you know, protesting, resisting, uh, being involved, the, the Greek left being involved in all these alternative projects. Uh, but the thing was that, you know, all the worst measures were still being inflicted on the Greek people. So the argument was that, you know, what was needed to set this process on a new trajectory was to elect a left government. The, a left government would, would turn all this around. It would say no to you know, the memorandum, no to, you know, all these austerity measures. And austerity is the wrong word for these measures, by the way. It's expropriation. It's expropriation of public property. It's expropriation of, you know, people's wages and pensions. Um, and a series of promised in government, it would put an end to this. It would reverse it. It couldn't, you know, it, it couldn't be capitalism one day and socialism the next. But it would, you know, first of all, reverse the worst that was happening and build an alternative in 
the direction of socialism, in a, in a, you know, according to a long-term trajectory. So what happened then once Syriza came to power? Well, they were elected um, in January uh, 2015 um, to the elation of the majority of people in Greece, um, including some who never voted left, um, because it offered hope. Hope was the key uh, concept. And to the elation of the international left, and even people beyond the left. In Ireland, there was an enthusiasm for the series of government that went way beyond the existing left. And it just, it just expanded people's sense of possibilities. It lifted people from their sense of powerlessness. Um, and so the atmosphere in the first days was kind of heady, you know, um, people, there was a huge demonstration in Syntagma Square, um, which was, you know, the, the, the major site of demonstrations against the government. There was a huge demonstration for the government as they entered into negotiations with the Trika. Now the and then there, were, there was just lots of publicity about, you know, uh, ministers not traveling around in ministerial cars and, you know, coming to work on public transport or in their own cars or, you know, uh, in Varoufakis's case on his motorbike. And, you know, there was just a lot of color coverage um, that, you know, it, it, it meant seriously, this government captured people's imaginations. Uh, which is a good thing for the left. However, as the negotiations began, I think um, it became clear that they were in over their heads, that uh, absolutely ruthless, brutal power would be exercised against them, even beyond the economic facts of, you know, what series owed, what series of caught, you know, it, it was actually beyond that. I felt, I think that the Troika, um, and basically, you know, the, the system itself, felt they had to cut down this project. They had to defeat this left government uh, because of the possibilities that uh, would arise elsewhere if it were successful. And uh, Syriza, I think, were in over their heads with that. Um, I felt that they had strategized for that, um, that they had a plan A and B and C and whatever. Uh, and would be able to cope with that, with, with difficulty, of course, but um, that isn't what happened. Um, on the 20th of February already, they conceded far too much. Among other things, they promised no unilateral measures. And, but the negotiations just went on and they adopted, uh, the series of government adopted a tone that was um, in turn defiant and obsequious. <laughs> and uh, it was, it, but you know, right up to July, I still had hopes. I was there in the spring and just, you know, I still felt there was a sense of possibility um, that they, they would manage somehow to either, you know, negotiate uh, some kind of truce with the Troika without signing a new memorandum. And, uh, but if, you know, the Troika refused, which was likely that they would take the necessary measures um, to take control of their own economy and, and their own society. But that is not what happened. There was a, a referendum, which was a, a stunning experience of political mobilization. The, the Troika had put a deal on the table and Tsipras, you know, went to the country and um, the Greek government went to the country to put it to, to the population in a referendum. It was a yes or no. Now, it wasn't a yes or no. To, I mean, technically, it was a yes or no to the, those specific proposals. But the population took it as a yes or no to the broad approach that the Troika was taking in relation to Greece. And uh, the opinion polls and the Greek media 
were um, massively uh, on the yes side or predicted that the result would be very close. And people, there was a lot of mobilization, both for yes and no. And, and even here in Dublin, we, we had a huge march, you know, where people marched the streets of Dublin shouting, Aki, Aki, the Greek word for no, which they didn't even know a week before. Um, people were so caught up in this, not only nationally, but internationally. So, um, as we know, um, the no side won, and it, it wasn't even that close. It was 60, nearly 62% uh, for no. And then the next day, Cipros behaved in exactly the way he would have if the vote had been the opposite. He did exactly what he would have done if it was a yes vote. He called the party leaders of the defeated side together and, you know, tried to come to a common negotiating position and just negotiated, negotiated, negotiated. And, you know, they, I think the Troika was angered at the referendum and at the result and put on the table a deal that was increasingly worse than anything, anything that had been put to Greece before that. So in, in later in July, mid-July, Cyprus uh, signed it. You know, people in, in Greece, people in the Greek left were stunned, even though, you know, it didn't happen just on that day. The, the path to this was, was well lit, uh, but it was still stunning the day that it actually happened. And I was in Greece at that time. And most people I knew, uh, particularly members of Syriza, were absolutely traumatized by it, absolutely traumatized by it, furious, you know, just engaged in intense conversation about what to do about it and demonstrating against their own government. The, the, you know, on, on the 15th of, of July, I was in a demonstration outside the parliament with members of Syriza, you know, and I, my, my friends were both inside the parliament and outside the parliament when it was being debated in the parliament. Um, it's just unforgettable. The the feeling uh, of that. And then we were tear gassed by the government we had supported, which is a pretty bad experience. Do, do you think that Syriza were naive with respect to what the powers that be, the Troika, how they would be treated by the Troika? Yeah, the section of Syriza that, that dominated the government, Tsipras uh, and those around him. Yes, I do. Um, I think they felt they could somehow persuade them. Um, I mean, it's kind of shocking because, you know, they were supposedly Marxists. And, you know, what was going on in, in those rooms was, was naked class struggle. I mean, Varoufakis um, is, uh, was naive as well, though he pr- tries to portray himself otherwise. But even the title of his book, Adults in the Room, quoting Christine Lagarde, you know, if only the adults would prevail, if only, you know, they were grown up enough to see the merit of his proposals, everything would have been all right. But that's not what it was about. That is never what it was about. Um, it was naked class struggle. It was the global system coming down hard on a left government that was a threat to the global order if it was successful. That's what it was about. But, you know, there's, there's something that happens to some people when they move in these circles. And like, even the body language of the whole thing, I found pretty nauseating, you know, when Tsipras uh, went to Brussels and there was all this, you know, hugging and kissing with Juncker and Merkel and all that. It's inappropriate. They're there representing states. And but, you know, they get sed- they tended to get seduced by that. And I mean, Varoufakis as well as Tsipras. 
I was very surprised by, you know, some of the stuff that was coming from Varoufakis, who we had on the show here before he became an international global superstar, that he would try and give these people at the negotiating table like an economics lecture about why it wouldn't work. You know, to me, that's you have to be very politically naive to think these people don't understand the economics of it. What they're interested in is the is the class interest and the power dynamic. Yeah, well, that played well in the international media. I mean, I kind of, on one level, I like the fact that he was doing that because, you know, it, it wasn't so much to convince those people, but it, it, it played well. He, he, he told a lot of, you know, basic facts of, you know, macroeconomic life to a, a global audience because those negotiations were absolutely floodlit. Uh, and he made, you know, he's, he's stunningly articulate. But he actually, on another level, did kind of believe that he could convince them. But it's also not true that they all um, understood all of that. I mean, Michael Noonan, I wouldn't say, had a very, very astute grasp of macroeconomics. But, like, it, it didn't matter whether he did or he didn't. He was going to do, you know, whatever the line, the EU line was, no matter what. On some level, you would think that as well, that it would be very irritating if you're at the negotiations and you had these guys come in and preach you. It would probably put their backs up. Yeah, and I can just imagine they could they could say, let's, you know, stick it to these guys who are coming in here. Yeah, but they actually were, you know, trying to persuade people, you know, to, to come up with a better deal. I think they had to they had to do that to a certain extent because, you know, the, the starting point was that Greece was in the EU and it was in the Eurozone. So that had to be the starting point to negotiate, you know, well, how can, you know, how can we sort things out? Uh, can we sort things out in a way that would be equitable, you know, to the people of Greece uh, and begin to, you know, reverse the worst of this within that? But they had to be well prepared for the fact that it wasn't going to be possible to do that. But I think they were right. They had to take that as the starting point because, you know, they, they weren't actually elected overtly to bring Greece out of uh, the Eurozone, let alone the EU. So I think they had to kind of, you know, negotiate and explore the possibilities within that. But they also had to be prepared for, you know, turning things around outside that. You see, what they had was a contradictory mandate. Basically, you know, there was, you know, this, they hadn't challenged the status quo of being within the Eurozone and within the EU. It was basically to stay in the Eurozone and to stay in the EU, but somehow to reverse the expropriation of the Greek people. So, I mean, I saw all through the negotiations, it was clear as anything that these were, you know, proving increasingly to be contradictory mandates. But I believed that Syriza should and even would choose the former over the latter, that their strongest mandate was to reverse the expropriation. And if that meant leaving the Eurozone or even being forced out of the EU, then so be it. But it turned out that they, you know, um, that they chose the, 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 the one over the other. Just getting back slightly to the technique of the negotiating, Yanis Varoufakis is going around selling books now and about how, you know, the adults in the room. He's still basically putting forward this idea nearly that people don't understand or they're naive. When really what you say is, is much more apt, that it's, it's class war. But that's not the message that's kind of being promulgated by even some of the Syriza people. It's sugarcoating the whole thing. I read the Varoufakis book where he came, reviewed it in Jacobin. Um, and, you know, the, the, the title of my review is Closed Rooms and Class War. You know, sort of opposing Varoufakis's very title, Adults in the Room. You know, and Varoufakis isn't, you know, a, um, he's not 
entire reliable narrator or analyst. I mean, I don't think he actually really understands fully at its core the difference between capitalism and socialism and really basic concepts. I mean, he, he understands the macroeconomics at a certain macro level, but not, you know, not macro at the systemic level. And, and also, the whole book is just suffused with the whole great man theory of history, which is a Marxist, I find, objectionable. He, he distorts the story, you know, in his absolutely um, amazing narcissism. But series, series itself has its, you know, it's, you know, those that have stayed in series. I mean, series, you know, one of the, one of the important parts of the story is that, you know, series was exited by massive numbers of its activists, you know, more than a third of its own central committee, um, its own general secretary, a number of its MPs, whole local organizations left series in, in the summer of 2015. And people are still, even some of the people that stayed are still leaving. So it's the series that's there now is not the series that was. Has essentially the, the Marxist part of it left? Well, there's still people that call themselves Marxists uh, in it. And, and some people I know still very sincerely call themselves Marxists in it. Uh, and they just can't give it up and they find ways of justifying them. But, um, you know, many, many Marxists uh, left. Many. You know, my, my hopes for Greece are in the forces of X series, although they're not really flourishing just yet. I have a question for you now. It's quite a it's quite a cynical question. Do you think that Syriza, as in the maybe the leadership, shall we say, do you think that they had any real intention of standing up when it came down to it? Do you think that this idea of saying no to the Troika was maybe somewhat of a of a political strategy? to gain power? Well, um, I think that for in the case of some people um, in the leadership of series, I would say, yes, that's true. For others, I would say at some point, at some point they were sincere about that um, and somehow thought they could. Um, I can't give the same answer for all the people I'm thinking of. Uh, in relation to that, even the people who have stayed in Syriza. I certainly know the people that left, honestly, believed what they were saying to the Greek people. These people built Syriza. These were, you know, people that made their electoral victory possible. They actually did believe, you know, they were going to say no and turn things around. So I have to give a different answer for, you know, different sections of Syriza um, and even different people within Syriza. I even think that Tsipras himself probably started out sincerely believing that he could turn it around. Some of the people around him, no, I don't think they ever ever really did. I watched an interview there. It was actually on The, the Real News, and there was a, a Greek economist, a Marxist economist, who was in Syriza before the referendum. Who? Uh, John Milios. Oh, yeah, I know him, yeah. You're a good guy. He was saying that he left Syriza before they climbed down against the Troika because he knew that was actually what was going to happen, and and that he thought that the referendum, essentially, they didn't want a no vote. They wanted it to be yes, so they could justify their actions and sign with the Troika all along. What do you make of that? Well, he, he did see it coming. Um, he did. Um, in fact, even in January, uh, before January 2015, he decided not to stand for parliament. 
I mean, he was somebody who was considered a possible government minister. And even, you know, before they started, you know, these talks with Varoufakis, he was seen as a possible minister for finance. I mean, he was head of the serious economic unit. But he, he kind of, over a couple of years, saw what was coming. I mean, we all saw, you know, the same things that he saw and that they could lead to that. But other people kind of let hope prevail and hope that it wouldn't turn out that way. But he increasingly saw that it was going that way and decided not to even stand for parliament in, in 2015 and therefore not be a government minister when it happened. What, what exactly did he see, you know, when you say the writing was on the wall? He saw the fact that they were, you know, so preoccupied with getting into power that, you know, they weren't paying proper attention to what they would do when they got into power. He saw the fact that they were more and more trimming. He saw, you know, what was going on with their negotiations with Varoufakis, who was on, you know, the right of him. Of course, he's not a member of, uh, never been a member of Syriza, but, you know, he, he was on the right of Syriza. A lot of people on the left somehow think he's more left than Syriza, but not, it's not so. And so, you know, he just saw them, you know, moving, you know, these various signs of Cyprus and the people around him moving to the right. And he was right. What have Syriza done in power since they signed on to Moran Morandum? The idea was, as far as I can make it out, that it's better to have, say, a left government like Syriza trying to do the cuts than a right-wing government. So what have they actually managed to do since they've signed that memorandum? Yes, this was their argument. And um, the overall effect of series in government has been uh, to make everything worse. Uh, there have been incre- further cuts in pensions, further cuts in wages, further cuts in, in public services, increasing privatisation of public property. All of these things, you know, Syriza have intensified, not, they've intensified them against their will, but they've nevertheless done it. And so all of those things have become worse. They do have what they call the parallel program, which are certain well, social welfare measures for the very, very poorest. But they, they are also, you know, promoting the measures that are making more and more people plunging down into the very poorest. But they're leaving those who are poor but not defined as the very, very, very poorest to, to avail these, you know, social welfare measures, poorer. Everything is, is worse on the whole. Um, and added to that is, is the loss of hope. You know, in those years before they were elected, and even, you know, the first years they were elected, there was still hope. And so, you know, people, you know, somehow got through these things. But now they're getting through these things in a, a very abject, dispirited, hopeless way. It's, it's, a, it's, a very, it's, it's very sad going to Greece these days. So, yes, they have this argument. And, and for certain people, the very poorest of the poor, there are certain things that are better than they would be under an alternative government. But it's not enough to justify the overall set of measures that, that CPRAS uh, government has enacted. It's not enough to justify themselves, in my opinion. But in their opinion, it is. Me looking at these negotiations, I found it quite hard to understand what they were hoping to do. As in, they never seemed to really play their Trump card in any real threatening sense. And ironically, it it seemed from the outside that that Varoufakis was nearly more more militant than, say, the leadership of the party. Not true. Is that not true? No, not true. It's, it's like he, he, he was he was often he was often the most obsequious uh, with the Troika, although he, he you know, employ, he'd employed defiant rhetoric now and again. And he certainly does now. Uh, but that's not true. No. 
did Varoufakis have a plan for instantiating like a dual currency whereby people could use this currency to pay their taxes? Um, he says so. I think, you know, at the 11th hour, he, he began trying to get something together that way. He makes a lot of it now in a way that I don't think is exactly accurate to what he was doing then. But yes, he and, and Galbraith and a few other people were working on that in the latter months. So what exactly was their strategy? I find it quite puzzling to understand what their strategy was. It would seem to me that if you were trying to actually stand up to the Troika, you'd need to have a lot of measures similar to that or, or other types of measures. But it seemed like there was no willingness to let the banking system collapse. So from a left person, you know, like there's lots of very bright Marxists and people who understand power dynamics. It seems baffling to me what actually they had planned. No, it does. I mean, um, and I think it was all baffling to them when they were in the middle of it, if I'm honest. I think they got in over their heads. I think they should have thought through their strategy. You know, if they do this, we'll do that. You know, and they, they never had a proper plan B in place. No matter what Farofaki says, towards the end, he tried to scramble something together and Cipros wouldn't even go for that. But there were other people, you know, on the left of Syriza uh, that were doing that kind of thinking and, you know, had a plan B worked out to some extent. You know, Lapovitsos and had been working on that for several years already. Uh, but, you know, Cipros and uh, Farofaki didn't, you know, barely would speak to Lapovitsos. They completely, and he's a, he was an, he's a, you know, an international expert in monetary economics, and he was a series MP, and, you know, they ignored him. So what's happened then to the body that has left Syriza? I know they started a new party, but they didn't get much of the vote. Um, a lot of people were just, you know, so depressed and uh, disoriented. They went home, as they say in Greece, and they were in disarray. Um, the most together people uh, immediately formed a new party called Laiki Anotita, in English it's called Popular Unity, um, not a good name, but um, these, were, these were people, you know, these were the, the people I took most seriously, still the people I take very seriously. They were the, the third largest party in Parliament uh, when they formed a new party. Actually, they were forced, they, they stayed in Syriza for July and August, and they voted against the measures that Syriza was bringing to the parliament. And, you know, Syriza got the, the Cyprus government got them through with the parties of the right and their votes in parliament. Uh, so they voted against um, the memorandum on successive votes in parliament. And then, they, you know, there were meetings of Syriza to have a party congress and to fight for who would be Syriza. And uh, what Cyprus did... Uh, he didn't call a party congress. He barely, you know, would consent to have a central committee meeting, and he called a general election. So those people were basically you know, the general election had the effect of purging the party, uh, because those people could not go and stand for election as Syriza, um, because you know they they weren't supporting the the series of uh, policies and series of votes in parliament. So they once the general election was already called, they had to hurriedly form a new party and stand in the election with, you know, no party structure, n no money, no office, nothing. And uh, but at that time that they formed the new party, they were actually the third largest party in parliament. So uh, they went into the election and, you know, I was there during the election as well. And people were just voting either for Syriza or for the right-wing alternative for Neo-Democratia. And they didn't want, want Neo-Democratia back. 
and a lot of people thought, oh, well, you know, Cpros, you know, fought as hard as he could and couldn't do anything else. And then massive numbers of people who voted for Syriza just said they will never vote again. I, I met many, many people said to me that they voted for Syriza in January, they voted Aki in July, and they would never, ever, ever vote again. They would never trust a politician. They would never trust the political process again. So there are massive numbers of people who didn't vote. So in that way, Syriza won the election of uh, 2000, uh, of um, uh, 2015. And Notita didn't get to the 3% threshold, which was a massive disappointment to me and to them, obviously. Um, and um, so they're, they're still going. They're out there in all the protests. They're, you know, still trying to build an alternative. There are many other other groups that are not as quite as well organized as like Yenotita, but you know, not all of the left within series that have joined that. Um, they just the forces of X series that haven't really been able to get themselves together. They're in disarray, but many of them are still active. They're active in the social movements. They're active in the protests against what the government's doing but not in, you know, a way that's really coming together just yet. But I still have my hopes that the forces of X series that will somehow find a new form. Um, it's not going to be like Yenotita. I mean, they'll have to, I think that the best thing will be for them to, you know, be part of some other larger formation eventually. But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm watching very closely for that to happen. I don't know if you've heard of it. There was been a big uh, 10 episode documentary series on the Vietnam War. I've heard about it. It's sponsored by the Koch brothers. So you can understand that it's not going to be, you know, too fair or too left. But it's actually reasonably good. But I was I was shocked when I watched it just at the level of dedication and planning and sheer toughness of, say, the North Vietnamese communists. Yeah. For all the flaws of, say, that kind of Leninist, Marxist kind of stuff, Stalinist, or I'm not exactly sure so much of the politics, for all their flaws, the fortitude displayed by these people was pretty staggering when you keep watching all of that documentary series. Yeah, I was in America during the anti-war movement. And, you know, I first started, when I first got involved, it was, you know, to get the US government to end the war. It was not just war. But increasingly, as time went on, you know, it became more and more for the Vietnamese to win, not just for U.S. to, you know, stop the war. Um, I became more and more impressed by people in the anti-war movement who were going to Vietnam and, you know, interacting both with the North Vietnamese government and with the NLF. I became very, very impressed with with the, with the Vietnamese. And I was shocked when I first, in, in, in the mid-60s, went on anti-war demonstration. And, you know, people were actually chanting ho 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 chi minh the nlf are going to but you know basically i came to the position as many others like me did that we wanted them to win and they did except the u.s won in another way <laughs> but the the level of sheer toughness and determination to win you know with all the flaws of all everything that happened in in the communist revolutions in europe but when we look now to like say us learning as a left is learning the lessons of all of that kind of stuff and we see that in a situation where it's totally not clear that if the banks had to shut down, it would affect negatively Syriza. To me, I think it would be able to be spun in Greece that it was the EU who were the bad guys and not Syriza who were the bad yeah. guys. A simple thing like a bank strike for two weeks or a hit of 5% to GDP is so unbelievably unthinkable 
by all of these people who are historically would be interested in revolution and, you know, socialism or communism, anarchism, whatever you want. It just seems startling to me that they were afraid even to pull the plug on just the banks just for a few weeks. You know, when you see what happened yeah. in Argentina, it was the left that did well out of it. I'm just surprised now looking back on it as in, you know, what what's wrong with, you know, radical leftists now? They can't even afford to, say, shut the economy down for a week. Yeah, well, it wouldn't have shut the whole economy. There would be some economic life. and But they, they should have strategized. They should have taken control earlier. They should have brought in capital controls earlier and taken control of the economy, even, you know, at the beginning of the nego negotiations. Uh, I mean, I'm not an economist, um, so I don't want to get over my head and, you know, saying exactly what they should have done. But I know they should have done a number of things differently than what they did do. And you're bringing it down to, you know, their, their moral determination, which also is a factor. You're contrasting them with the North Vietnamese in a far more severe situation. And you're saying they come out of it badly. I think that's where you're going with that. And, you know, I have to agree. Is it something about the kind of radical left in the West now, as well, a kind of a, you know, a kind of a deeper issue that it, that a lot of the people who are in it have a naivety about the enmity of the system when it comes down to it? Yes, I think so. Um, some do. I think that, um, yeah, that I think we have to realise what we're up against. I don't think they had properly conceptualised, not the ones that, you know, that made the decisions. I don't think they properly conceptualised the power that would be exerted against them. And I think we all have to, you know, learn from that and understand it. I mean, what a formidable system it is. But we have to kind of, you know, strategize for what we can and can't do and go as far as we can with what we can do. But it's, you know, it's a pretty formidable system. I mean, that, that, that will, will be exerted against us if we try to do anything like what they were trying to do. But we can't go out and promise to do it and not do it. Seems to be in a tremendous psychological defeat in Greece. Yeah, terrible defeat. It's a defeat for the whole left. And we haven't recovered from it even close yet. And yet, you know, there have been surges of the left, you know, elsewhere, things that hold more promise than, you know, any real power. But, you know, the, the whole battle over the, the Labour Party in Britain, symbolised by the Corbyn election, the whole Sanders campaign, there, there's, there's something from below welling up. I mean, and the Occupy movement, you know, really brought, you know, a lot of people into action against the whole global system. And, you know, it's, it, it might have gone away. It wasn't a sustainable form as a movement. But that ferment is still there. And people are looking for new forms. They're looking for, for some new way. We haven't found it yet. What do you see then as the future for the Greek left? I see that, um, you know, they'll have to cope with defeat in the immediate future, but the forces of X-Series will have to get themselves together into something coherent and, and you know, take on Syriza uh, as well as the other parties. See, I still believe in the strategy of forming Syriza-type parties. I'm still committed to Syriza-type parties, and that is broad left parties that combine the forces of the old and the, the old left and the new social movements. I still believe in that. And I think that, you know, the Greek left and other lefts have to build those type of parties. That's one, one of the many things we have to do. I, I still believe in, you know, the long march through all the institutions of the society, um, which is not only engaging in electoral politics, but in, you know, gaining positions in, you know, trade unions and universities and schools and, you know, forming these alternative projects 
that meet people's immediate needs as well as, you know, sow the seeds for a future society. I believe in all that. And the Greek left still is doing a lot of that, by the way. Um, they're not they're not forming an effective party yet um, to take on series. Of, I mean, they're trying, but they haven't succeeded in, in one that will do that. But they're still involved in, you know, all these other kind of projects. And um, I think that, you know, the rest of us have to uh, engage in all, all of those all of those things all at once. But I think that forming broad left parties to form uh, left governments is an important part of that. And the Greek has to aim at that. Is there a danger in being too broad in your approach? Yes, there is. Definitely, there's a danger of being too broad. And then, you know, having the people that are too far to the right, you know, coming to the top and subverting the whole thing. Absolutely, it's a danger. Well, thanks very much, Professor Sheehan, for coming on the show today. Ah, it was my pleasure. Good to talk to you. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, by Sun Ra and his orchestra, and you are now listening to Colin Carr playing Bach's Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. Thank you.